a very warm welcome to the Future of Leisure and Events podcast, podcast hosted by the students of Leisure and Event Management program at the Academy for Leisure at Beida University of Applied Sciences. In today's episodes, me, Divine Anida will be talking with a very special guest all the way from the United States. Good morning and thank you very much for joining. Afa Dworkin, president of the Sphinx organization in Detroit. First of all, congratulations with the 25-year existence and the change you already made in terms of diversity and inclusion in the music industry. Before we start, could you give a small introduction on yourself and the company? Sure. My name is Afa Dworkin. I serve as president and artistic director of the Sphinx organization, which is an international arts organization with a focus and a mission of transforming lives through the power of diversity in the arts. Uh, we are celebrating the 25th anniversary this year. Um, the, the work of the Sphinx organization spans a whole pipeline uh, from young people who are introduced to classical music for the very first time, all the way through the pre-college and college age development for young people and into professional development and advancement of musicians of color here in the United States and elsewhere abroad. Overall, we reach about 150,000 students every year and more than 66 million uh, through live and uh, broadcast audiences as well as our digital imprint. Our programming spans everything from and introductory creative youth development programs all the way to a global convening um, through which we feel we serve the field. And as far as myself, I am a trained classical uh, violinist and a musician, although for the last 25 years, my life has been largely dedicated to this work um, at Sphinx, both from the artistic standpoint and now most recently over the last seven years, I've assumed uh, the presidency as well. On the side, I also teach um, arts leadership, as well as diversity in classical music at several universities. And that comprises my creative and professional life. Okay, so as we know, you have quite different roles. As the president of the company, what, what are your day-to-day -day tasks? Yeah, great question. My day-to-day -day tasks, um, they range from uh, fundraising and speaking to donors, um, both institutional and individual donors, to really advocate for the mission and the necessity of our mission, and uh, really securing the resources necessary for Sphinx to advance its work throughout the year. Uh, but my tasks also involve day-to-day um, -day managing my team. I have an 11-person full-time team and about 60 people between uh, seasonal and part-time team, and it involves checking in with them and managing their work, supporting what they're doing, and really connecting on a human level. Um, but because my role is dual, I also um, do a lot of programming. I oversee the artistic direction of our work. So for example, today, once I'm done with a podcast, I'll spend several hours researching and crafting the tour program two years from now for our main performing ensemble, the Sphinx Virtuosi. I'm trying to look at important historical events that will be celebrated two years from now and what might be most important for Sphinx to highlight um, as we do that and what kinds of music should really be programmed and explored and performed and recorded by an organization like Sphinx. My main goal in doing so is to connect with our communities 
and make sure that what we do on stage is important and relevant to especially communities of color and uh, perhaps some of the more historically marginalized uh, communities in our country and elsewhere. So that's kind of an example of a day. Okay, it's very uh, interesting and also sounds like a busy schedule. How do you combine the both, so both of, both of the roles? Yeah, it, that's a great question too. I am a big believer in technology. So I have, uh, I rely upon my technology to help me organize my day. I follow the Sunday organization system when on Sunday evening, I sit down with my calendar and my task list and I plan out the whole week. I look and see what meetings have already been scheduled, how many tasks I have on hand for each day. And then I carefully and honestly evaluate whether I can accomplish that or whether some things need to be moved around. And then every night, the night before, before the day starts, I follow that review process once more because I want to just look in and understand what I have on hand for my meetings and my travel, uh, as well as if I have to be anywhere um, for a meeting in person, in addition to also managing my family life. And although sometimes I think I can get it all done, I have to be realistic and plan extremely carefully and very conservatively and meticulously. And then I have uh, a, a task management system for me. Um, it's an app that's called FireTask. It's actually a German app that uh, keeps me very straight and narrow and makes sure that I don't forget anything I'm supposed to do. And I carefully look and see which of the tasks should I be delegating out to my team and which of the tasks is very important that I do and no one else does. So that's how I manage it. I also have some um, elements of my life that are sacred, which are my family dinners. I make sure that nothing interferes with that. Um, I am an avid cook, so I always set aside time to cook unless I'm traveling. And I have uh, two cats and a puppy. So I love to spend time with them. So early in the morning is our personal time with my furry children. Um, I have two kids. One is grown, is 23, and the other one is 15, who's still at home. So for the 15-year-old, um, it's very important that I carve out time to make sure and talk to him after he returns from school and uh, make sure I support him in addition to supporting my whole team. And I, I manage that very carefully and very intentionally. And I try to not let anything interfere with my time with my partner as well, which is usually dinner and afterwards. Um, so it just requires, I think, um, careful planning and um, I think almost an analytical approach to the day and making sure that I never, um, that I'm very intentional about the things I want to do versus things I need to do. Yes, it's important to have a good work and personal life balance. And yeah. as we know, you were born in Moscow and later raised in Azerbaijan. How was your experience living and studying in the United States? Very different. Um, yeah. I came to the States when I was 17, so a relatively young person, but also someone old enough to have gone through elementary and secondary school in a different country. So my experience studying here was challenging and different. It was challenging in that learning the language was a big, um, a giant undertaking for me. I just, I hadn't studied English as a younger person. Um, and that, that made my time maybe almost singularly focused on developing command of the language and learning the grammar. And most importantly, I think, 
finding the comfort level for conversational English, which to me is the hardest part, really, with that. Um, the rest of my educational experience here in Michigan and in the States in general was, um, was kind of surprising in some ways in that my academic experience and the learning and how it was structured was relatively not challenging in that I didn't find it very demanding. Um, in college, I did have a very nice and solid foundation in music academics, like music history and theory and counterpoint and harmony. I, I love all of those subjects. And I found that I was fortunate to come here with, with a nice base of understanding and didn't have to spend a lot of time. Um, I think the rest of the system was structured so differently. There was a really heavy emphasis on orchestral development versus solo. So I found that to be unusual and it took some getting used. I probably took probably at least a year or year and a half to get used to the balance and work with that. Um, I think most of my challenge was really social, the fitting in part and understanding how things are valued and finding my spot really. Um, but my favorite part in my academic experience in the States was that there was a lot of time and freedom for me to explore things which were new to me. So as a student, I had the opportunity to play in a professional orchestra from my freshman year onward, really throughout my college career. Um, so that was great. I was exposed to wonderful collaborative opportunities with professionals and also um, my exposure to Sphinx as an early idea came when I was a sophomore in college. So I don't think I could have encountered an, an opportunity as meaningful as this elsewhere in the world. So in that way, I think inadvertently some of the freedom and time and otherness of my experience gave me this incredible exposure to something that was to become my life's work. Um, because that was an idea that came about from my then classmate and a friend uh, who had the idea of diversifying classical music in the United States. And while I thought it was an outlandish idea, I was very intrigued by it. And I had the great privilege to get involved from a very early age. And um, how would you describe your own cultural identity? Great question. I consider myself a, a multiracial, multicultural person. I come from mixed heritage. I grew up in a Jewish and Muslim household. My father was a Persian Jew and my mother is a Zeri Muslim. So in that way, I grew up in a mixed but an open environment, um, which was made ever so more complex because I grew up during the Soviet Union where uh, religion was uh, neutralized, I would say, to put it mildly. And in fact, we were encouraged to think of ourselves as a society as all of one and post-racial in some ways and post-cultural and unity and conformity and solidarity were uplifted much more. Now as a person in my late 40s, I recognize it's a utopic idea, but it is a part of who I am. Um, that sense of oneness uh, and with kind of balanced with an opportunity to celebrate entirely different cultures um, was really a big privilege and an opportunity for a young person. And my parents also exposed us to many different cultures because one of the advantages in growing up in the Soviet Union is that there were 15 sovereign republics with probably hundreds of different ethnicities and cultures and races. And I had the chance to be exposed to that. But being somebody who was actually born in Russia 
and they're um, being considered somebody who's a real minority, racial minority, also gave me a taste of something that I was to experience decades later in the States here. Um, so I, in that way, it's, it, it gave me a, an opportunity or a glimpse into something um, that I was to see through my work much more. And interestingly now, my children who are extremely mixed have a completely different experience because they have all the wealth of cultures from me, but also my husband who's a biracial person as well. So our kids are everything. And it's really interesting to see the world through their eyes, which is so very different than my own. Okay, and how, how, were you, how was you able to get to this position in your life? Yeah, so I, uh, this was never my plan. My plan and aspiration was to become a concert violinist. And then maybe later in life, I dreamt of having a career uh, in the academic world musically. I am passionate about teaching and I thought I would really enjoy teaching at a university level. So that was my plan as a 17 and 18 year old. But I was exposed to Sphinx as an idea which was brought to our studio class by my friend and classmate, Aaron Dworkin, who was to become my life partner. But at that point, he was an interracial, um, a biracial violinist who struggled with the idea of um, always being the only person of color in any musical room, be it as uh, uh, somebody who led a youth orchestra in his young years, uh, to somebody who sat in a concert hall experiencing classical music concert all the way through kind of his college career, he found it really challenging to, to identify a peer group. So he chose to do something about it. His idea was to create a platform for young musicians of color like himself who are excelling in an instrument but do not have uh, this exposure or a platform and network to relate to one another. So he started what was the Sphinx competition at the time for young black and brown classical musicians, uh, which he started as an undergraduate student at the University of Michigan. I was a classmate then, and I was very interested by the idea. And I became um, the first student intern uh, for Sphinx, because we had a wonderful opportunity to sign up for an internship and get this experience. And I was just driven and taken by the idea of creating opportunities as wonderful as mine were when I was a young person for kids who deserve it, but don't have it. Um, so that was my motivation. And then in 1998, when the first Sphinx competition happened, and I was able to observe it firsthand, but also play in the Ann Arbor Symphony, which was the accompanying orchestra for the inaugural year Sphinx competition, I fell in love and was just swept away by not just the high level of music making, which was definitely true amongst the young musicians, but I was most touched and just entirely overtaken by the emotion of unity and connection and the network that was being built, not just by the young people themselves, but also their families who did not know that there are dozens and maybe more um, of these talented musicians of color like their own children. So I saw the beginnings of a family being built and that's what probably most poignantly attracted me to Sphinx. So I became an intern and then rose to the various ranks at Sphinx and I held different positions of um, heading up the educational division, artistic uh, programming, which is definitely a big passion of mine. I do love to program. And then I became the executive director. And as I learned and gained more comfort and different skill sets in 
uh, also writing grants and being able to express myself both orally and in written form, eventually became an executive director and then uh, president when my partner and Sphinx's founder ended up transitioning to become the dean of the School of Music, Theater and Dance here at the University of Michigan. So then the board elected me into this role. Um, so in many ways, my life has been, my life's work has been Sphinx, even though during that time, I did many other things on the side, like play in an orchestra, still do a lot of teaching, uh, both teaching the violin, but also teaching eventually uh, an academic advanced level in the administration sphere. Um, I had a short stint when I thought that I didn't want to do music anymore. And I worked for an oil and gas company okay. <laughs> as a translator. Um, I, I was a trilingual translator for uh, for an oil and gas company. And I thought I would go get my business degree in master's in business administration. But relatively quickly, I realized that wasn't for me and my passion was in the arts. And I returned and that's what I've been doing uh, largely since. Okay. And what do you see now as your highest achievement in your career? Oh, highest achievement. I'm not sure I've reached that yet. Okay. I think, I think and I hope it's somewhere in the future. I think my, my most proud aspect of the work I do is helping to build this community family of more than 1,000 alumni who are a big family and are there for each other and together comprise the kind of the hope and the whole ethos of Sphinx. Uh, I'm not sure I can call it my achievement. It's more a big privilege to be a part of that. Um, certainly building, helping to build Sphinx from the beginning is a very special part of my life and, and really kind of a main part of my professional experience. But I hope that my proudest achievement is in the future. And how does a student sign up for Sphinx? Do they have to do an audition? Do they pay tuition? What's kind of the process? Yeah, great question. The process for signing up for our programs is different depending upon the level of programming. For our early educational programs, they just need to apply. There's no audition. We take beginners and we really focus on more areas with most need, geographic areas with most need. And from there, we just recruit young people who are interested and we provide everything. There is no tuition ever for any of our programs. It's a big philosophical point for us. We don't charge uh, any fees, no application fees across the board. Uh, we want to minimize any barriers that already might be in place, including economic barriers that um, that have historically been there in many communities of color. So, so none of that. Beginning with our intermediate programming, however, people do need to audition and apply. Um, and what they do is they follow audition guidelines, submit an application online as well as their audition and, and let us know why they feel they should be chosen. So beginning with intermediate programming, all of our programs are competitive based upon level of achievement. Um, and then our granting programs are strictly based on application um, uh, and based on merit and full education process. And then with the student housing, is that also something that you organize or? We do. For our residential programs, we provide housing and work to make sure that, again, that's not a barrier. Okay. Mm -hmm. And wh what were the obstacles the organization was facing in the beginning and how did you manage to overcome them? Probably the main obstacles were that it was a new idea 
and there wasn't an example set forth by others. So the proof of concept was something we worked very hard to create. Uh, and the other obvious um, challenge was really finding the resources and the funding to start the program and to continue it. And probably the continuation of it was even more challenging um, because after you, it's, it's once it's a startup, there's excitement because there's initial funding, but then when there's not the basis or, or sort of the resources and reserves behind it, right? Then it's a question of how do we build the resources to ensure continuity? Um, that remains one of my biggest challenges today, but of course it's at a whole other, it's a, it's a different level because we do have a proof of concept and now quarter of a century of uh, proven track record of excellence in this work. Okay, and are you satisfied with how far the organization has come? Hmm. I'm proud of the integrity and the content of the work that we've done. And I'm certainly overjoyed with the level of musicianship and so many important achievements by our artists and alumni. I, I think the word satisfy is tough. I think I'm a pretty driven individual and I know that there's a vision um, where Sphinx's work and Sphinx's mission is fully realized. And that is a vision upon which time Sphinx's work shouldn't be necessary anymore. And that's when um, our leadership ranks, our conservatories, our colleges, our music schools, our scores, our you know, corner offices, executive offices are, are justly represented by people of color where it, the diversity would reflect the diversity of our nation. And that's a time when I think I could be satisfied. Well, we've got some ways to go. I'm proud of our achievements, but I do recognize there's a long way to go. Since it's been 25 years, what is Sphinx's future plans? Our future vision is really going deeper in our work and bringing some of the work to scale, right? So, um, and really I would say the other way is turning more inward toward our artists and, and advancing our mission through the work of our artists. We have in the past decade, I would say, more shaped ourselves into being a service to the field organization, an organization that's not just doing in its work in a silo, but is outward facing and is sharing resources, our findings, achievements, and the incredible artists that we have with the world. I see expanding that and augmenting that. So if our programs are partnering with 360 different organizations, I wanna see us double and triple those numbers. I wanna see our artists not on the stages of maybe a hundred orchestras, but maybe multiple hundred. If we've commissioned 30 to 50 works by living composers of color, I'd like to see that doubled. And I would, I would love to see our reach expanded. Uh, that much more. Um, I'd also love to see some offshoots of our programs that are led by our alumni, and that's already begun to happen. The Sphinx competition for young string players was launched 25 years ago, 26 almost. But I'm excited that this year will mark the first year for a vocal competition that's started by one of our alumni. The first uh, year of the piano competition for young Black uh, African-American musicians, and that started by one of the recipients of Sphinx's grants and so on and so forth. I see this as a necessary expansion and bringing everything to scale. Um, and I think that's an important, um, I think it's an important area of work as we look ahead.
so that's very inspiring. Um, so you've been with the company for almost 26 years now, um, but have you already thought about what you're going to do after swings? Like, what what are your aspirations and do you already have something in your mind? It's a great question. I have not thought about my life without Sphinx. <laughs> in my adult years, almost all of my adult years, Sphinx has been a part of it. So I see potentially, you know, as Sphinx grows, I see um, maybe expanding some of the teaching I'm able to do, some of the mentoring and supporting I'm able to do for our artists. But I see all of that as part of my work at Sphinx. It's really difficult to imagine doing something else as my main kind of creative outlet. That's totally understandable. And for our last question, we wanted to know as a music listener, how can we make a change? How can we be a part of the movement? Oh, that's a terrific question. So as audience members, both online and in person, I encourage everyone to seek out um, works by composers of color. And there are great listening lists. There's a, there's a whole resource page on the Sphinx page to check out. I encourage you for live performances as much as possible to go and support some of this music being performed, um, not just Sphinx, but by many of our artists who now live worldwide. And I would, um, I think, introducing yourself to some of this music, but also expanding that knowledge within your own immediate social circles and communities is really the way to normalize diversity and excellence, which go hand in hand together. And because entertainment is such a big part of our lives and you as young people uh, listen con to consume so much music electronically, there are incredible um, uh, lists, listening lists by uh, that feature some of the living composers and historical composers of color. And I think supporting that and consuming that and really educating ourselves about the awesome music that's out there is a way that we can do our part. Oh, I'm really touched. So uh, thank you very much for joining our conversation. It was truly very inspiring for us. And hopefully the message will resonate with our listeners as well. Um, we would like to wish you the best of luck with the inspiring projects ahead.